Welcome to the Campbell Conversations. I'm Grant Reeder. My guest today is Onondaga County's relatively new public health commissioner, Dr. Katherine Anderson. She started in the position last November. Dr. Anderson succeeds Dr. Indu Gupta, who appeared on the program several times in recent years. Dr. Anderson is an epidemiologist and has served as director of the Center for International Research at Upstate University's Institute for Global Health, and she remains on the faculty there. Dr. Anderson, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. We really appreciate you making the time. So let me just start with something real basic. If you could just remind our listeners briefly, what is the job description of the County Health Commissioner? The County Health Commissioner is charged with overseeing all the activities of the health department, which I thought I had a great sense coming into it how expansive that was, but I've been learning over the last two months the broad range of activities that our Onondaga County Health Department does. It's really astounding. So everything from overseeing our drinking water to forensic investigations and forensic autopsies to treating STDs and TB to tracking numbers and surveillance to going out into homes and making sure that families have access to everything they need to keep their children safe and healthy and safe homes to live in. Wow. Yeah, it is. That is covering the waterfront. So um, and and how were you chosen for this role? What was the mechanism that the county used to decide that you would be succeeding Dr. Gupta? Well, so I'll be honest, um, going back to when I first arrived here in Syracuse, I got here end of 2019. And this position, to be completely honest, was not fully on my radar. I had moved here with my family to pursue an academic position and do research here at SUNY Upstate. Um, but I had worked closely with our community during the COVID response, um, engaged in messaging, media, community outreach, research as well, and had gotten to know a lot of um, community-based organizations, other academic partners, and some um, of, the, of the people at the health department over that time. And so when that position came available, it really resonated with the positive experiences that I had had during the pandemic and seemed like something that I would want to pursue. And so it's a it's a process where you put yourself forward and then and then who ultimately makes the decision? It's the county executive, the legislature, both of them. How's that work? Right. So um, once a candidate expresses their interest, and in my case, me, um, the county executive would need to approve of that person to fill the role. And then the county legislature would need to approve the position as well. Okay, so kind of like a presidential appointment in a way. So you mentioned COVID and the pandemic, and I did want to ask you several questions about that. I mean, unfortunately, we are still living with it. Um, And and the first one is just an overview, since you were so heavily involved in it prior to taking this position. How well do you think that Onondaga County as a county has done relative to other counties in New York and maybe even other counties across the nation in dealing with this virus and and avoiding the virus? Well, you know, I think one of the reasons that I was so motivated after my experiences with COVID, which were at times very challenging, and then at times also a new phase of satisfying for me to be working more locally, my, my history is working in international research and studying things that mostly impact populations far from here and people other than my family. And living and working through COVID was really one of my first life experiences, studying something that was impacting our health every day and working with community partners and neighbors to try to tackle it. 
And I wasn't at the health department during the time that we were dealing with the first two years of COVID. Like you say, we are still dealing with COVID. But I can say as a resident of the county and someone who'd worked with them as well during the response to the pandemic, I think our county did a great job. Not just the health department, but also the academic institutions. I was at Upstate during that time. Um, and our community partners really came together and responded admirably and in a creative way to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. and, and as a follow-up to that, and this is something that that I, I've asked a lot of different people about, elected officials and your predecessor too, and it, it, it's a puzzle in my own mind. It, that what you just said resonates with me, but there's another piece about Onondaga County that doesn't, and, and I wanted to put that to you, and it's that although it seemed to do particularly well in the early days of COVID, I'm just looking at like numbers in the New York Times or CDC numbers, there have been, though, at the same time, many extended periods where we ranked among the most heavily hit for the prevalence of the virus and for hospitalizations. And sometimes we were put, even fairly recently, on this list of the very worst counties in the United States. And so what do you think is going on that, that, that made COVID sticky at times here, for lack of a better word, um, in Onondaga County? or at least it appeared from the statistics to be that way. Well, it's a little hard to unpack all of that because even now it's difficult to know what to do with case numbers and how accurately they reflect the real burden of an infection in the population, right? Um, and we may have quite good surveillance, for example, and that may increase the numbers of cases we're picking up. Uh, or, for example, we are one of just four places in the state um, upstate is actually in Onondaga County that is doing regular sequencing of COVID variants. So for that reason, we might be quicker than other places to pick up a new variant, but it's because we're actively looking for it. I but see. that said, um, we also have some other, we have some challenges in our county and that there are areas where people are less likely to have access to care or to access care. Um, we certainly have pockets of people who are vaccine hesitant or have not been eager to go out and get their COVID vaccines. Um, and so that all likely contributes to it as well. Hmm. I'm Grant Reher. You're listening to The Campbell Conversations, and my guest is Dr. Katherine Anderson, the Public Health Commissioner of Onondaga County. You know, on that point, when I was trying to tease this out, one of the things that occurred to me, and I just wanted to see if you thought this might be a, a factor as well, is we have all these hospitals here and I know that's not unique to other places, so that was the the hurdle I couldn't get over. But it does seem like you're going to get then more people who are not feeling well and feel like they need to go to a hospital if they've got COVID. And secondly, everybody who gets any kind of medical procedure, because I've had to have a couple of them in this, you know, you get you get a test, which is the best test you can get. So I'm just wondering if that kind of drives those numbers up too, do you think? It might. It also, I think, um, touches on something that I'm, I'm eager to talk about more, which is the considerations of our hospitals being critical aspects of our community that are heavily utilized and are under some stress right now. And we certainly saw that with COVID and we'll certainly see that going forward. Um, we saw that recently with actually what turned out to be an average flu year where our hospitals were still strained. I think I'm not speaking out of turn to say that. And we'll see it again when the next actually routine phenomenon goes on that stresses them further. And we saw that during the COVID pandemic, to be sure. Well, go ahead and follow up on that. I mean, is it 
Is this something that as health commissioner, you're, are you worried about our hospital's future in that regard? Is, is, where, where, does, where does it take your concerns? Well, I think in saying this, I'm echoing concerns that I have heard from hospital representatives here. And, and I and we at the health department are eager to support them because certainly hospitals are critical to the health of our community. You know, we go across the range from preventive and trying to prevent people from needing the hospital to we really want people to be able to access a bed when they really need it, as you were saying. And the situation here is not so different than it is across the United States, where even before COVID, our medical systems were strained. There wasn't enough primary care. The hospital beds were almost always at capacity. And now in this new phase of COVID, I won't say post-COVID, things are even more strained than they were before. And so I think that it's something that we're going to have to message frequently and message carefully, but we really need people in our community to be availing themselves of all the preventive things they can be doing, flu vaccines, COVID vaccines, not because there's, you know, the worst flu pandemic, you know, or excuse me, worst flu epidemic in years, but it was actually an average flu year and we just didn't have enough beds for everything. Yeah. And some of it, I think, is personnel problems, too, if I understand it, that Yep. A lot of folks have left the field, and how do you get them back? Nationwide, yep. Yeah. Let, let me ask you another question about specifically about COVID, where we are right now. I've been reading recently that there is now a new, new variant. Um, I can't remember the name of it. You probably know it, but it's something like B.1 or whatever. But XBB, yep. There, there you go. Uh, and it's newer. it's newer than the previous new variant of several months ago. Do we know how effective that new booster is against this even newer variant? I think not yet. Um, but it is likely that the new bivalent booster will still provide significant protection. And I think it's important to talk about that a little bit because I think that people don't fully appreciate how important this new booster is in helping protect against these new variants. So we've had COVID vaccines now for about about two years. Mm -hmm. um, the new booster that came up this last fall, just a few months ago, is the one that people really need to go out and get because it protects against different viruses, different strains than what people would have gotten two years ago. And there's a lot of folks out there, I know some of them, who were among the first to get in line and get their COVID vaccines when they came out in early 2021, but they're not up to date anymore. And if they hadn't gotten their their booster, in particular, this new bivalent booster that protects against multiple strains and the new the new strains that are circulating, they're out of date, and they really need to go seek that out. And and on that point, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to make a virtual house call here for me, <laughs> but I think it applies to other people. So, I have had all of the early vaccines that you could get, um, and then I've had all the boosters that have been available, including this new one. I also got COVID a couple months ago, um, happened to get it like three weeks after I got the new booster. So I, I, I didn't ask for my money back, but still. Um, so, okay. So given that I've had all the shots I could have, and I just had COVID about a couple months ago, how protected am I right now? Am I bulletproof or do I still need to be careful? That's an important question. So you are likely well protected against getting very sick with COVID. And that's the take home, right? We, we wanna make sure we can prevent hospitalizations and deaths from COVID. These vaccines 
don't protect, don't prevent against all infections. And if we look around our community, if I look around my friends and family who are actually getting a fair amount of COVID right now, who are also up to date, you can see that. It doesn't prevent you from necessarily getting COVID, but the hospitalizations and deaths are way down and people really need to appreciate that. The other thing people need to know is that the protection seems to wane over time. So if you got your last booster a year ago or two years ago, people are not as protected as they need to be. And I'm knocking as wood, I'm knocking on wood literally as I say this, but I have to say to follow up on what you said, my my COVID that I got was extremely mild. I have to say it was it was milder than a cold. So um, you know, I, I attribute that to the booster. We hear that a lot, and I think that's one thing that people hold out a lot in terms of why they don't want to get the vaccine is they say, well, if it doesn't prevent you from getting COVID, why should I get it? And first of all, it does prevent you to some degree from getting COVID. It, your risk is much lower. But if you get it, and this is where it's really important, you're less likely to die or get really sick, which is really what we want. I'm Grant Reeger, and I'm talking with Dr. Katherine Anderson. She became public health commissioner for Onondaga County last November. All right, well, let's leave the happy topic of COVID behind for a little while. And let me ask you this question. Aside from COVID, um, what would you say is the current state of the county's health? How are we doing? Well, um, we have a lot of good things going for us. Um, as we've talked about, we have some strong hospitals in the area where you can get really advanced care and they do a great job. We also, I'd say, have a strong health department and strong, you know, academic uh, medical research institutions here in our county, which helps a lot. We also have some challenges. Um, oh. And one thing that I'll, I'll, I'll mention, because I think it needs to continue to be a strong focus for us, is preventive care, and in particular, getting into areas that have been historically under-resourced and making sure that families and children um, have access to the screening and testing and treatment and healthy living that we all deserve to have. Yeah, and I wanted to probe into that a little bit. So um, how do you see that particular challenge? What's what's driving it? How should we be thinking about it? What are, you know, tell, tell me more about that challenge. Oh, I think there's a lot to... A lot to unpack there. Um, there are, I think, a lot of a lot of challenges go hand in hand with communities being, as I've said, under resourced. Um, mm -hmm. Which is to say that economically they live in areas that are depressed, and that goes hand in hand with um, housing that is out of date. Um, decreased access to healthy food. We think about food deserts and things like that, transportation to get to medical care, challenges of finding a primary care physician um, for anybody right now in the county is, you know, and nationwide is a challenge. Um, so there's really lots of layers that make this challenging, but utterly important. And if I am a physician and I'm in a group practice, um, what are the uh, requirements regarding, if we're talking about people who are poor, they're, they're likely to be on Medicaid, at least the poorest are likely to be on Medicaid. Um, and New York has a pretty expansive Medicaid program, so there's a you know, significant 
portion of our population in New York is able to qualify for that or some version of it. If you're a provider, what, when is it that you're required to, to, to see folks like that? Or can you just say, I, I don't want that. I, my practice, I don't, you know, I, I'm going to choose not to see those folks in my practice. How does that work? Because you mentioned finding a primary care doctor. So I, I would think the available supply of them is going to be an issue. Right. And, and for anybody with any kind of insurance right now, nationally, finding a primary care physician is challenging. And I'm, I can't quite yet speak to the specifics on what the requirements are in terms of insurance and medical practices. But I can say that across the board, there are shortages in supportive services like physical therapy, occupational therapy, mental health is a huge one. And unfortunately, insurance does sometimes play into access as well. Yeah, I know, like, I think I know that a public hospital, if it takes public funds, then it that it is required to to take everyone. Um, that's part of the deal of getting the money. I just didn't know how that extended to private group practices and how much discretion they would have. Well, and certainly emergency departments see all comers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and another question about this, I wanted to get your reflections on this because you're really getting at this primary challenge, you're really getting at the issue of inequality um, and, and you know, not just relative inequality, but but the absolute problems that folks who have, as you said, under-resourced, live in under-resourced areas or don't have enough resources. And there's been a lot of attention, I think, for a lot of good reasons in the last few years on um, racial disparities, racially based disparities. And I'm just wondering from a public health perspective whether you think there is any danger that we might lose sight of um, economic income and wealth-based disparities by looking primarily at racial disparities. If you had any thoughts about that. Well, I think that as we were discussing, I think that one of the fundamental issues is whether or not these areas have been historically under-resourced or generations of being under-resourced. And so that doesn't end up being necessarily a racial issue, but there's certainly racial disparities in Syracuse and in Onondaga County. But we also have areas that are predominantly white and are under-resourced in more rural areas. And so I think I agree with you. We don't want to lose sight of the, the multiple factors and the history of things that are playing into why some areas might be more challenged. Wow. If you just joined us, you're listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media. I'm Grant Reher, and I'm speaking with Onondaga County Public Health Commissioner Katherine Anderson. Well, let's say that you had an unlimited budget for health improvement in the county. You just you could do anything you wanted. Where would you invest and spend the money? What would you do? Well, I'm two months in, so that might be presumptuous of me to spend <laughs> unlimited funds, but I can already tell where um, I think that a lot of our energy should be focused. And my colleagues at the at the um, health department, the more I speak with them, that's also where their hearts and priorities are, is to really be vested in our communities and increase the the depth of our integration and our, and our reach um, in terms of understanding what people need and what their challenges are and being able to in a streamlined way, help bring together these different needs. Um, and so that would include things like nutrition, access to care, um, healthy housing, um, linking in access to the other county level supports 
um, in terms of you know social services and things like that. And so being much more efficient, but also being much more out into the community and interacting with families and residents. Mm. And I recognize the question I'm about to ask is a kind of another sticky one, maybe politically, but one of the things that strikes me when I not only encounter the healthcare system as a patient, but when I look at it from a, a broader observational standpoint is just how much in the United States we've got this really kind of crazy patchwork system where you've got some things are public programs at the local level, at the county level, then you have the state, then you have nationally guaranteed programs, but then you have the private health insurance. A lot of that is from employers, but then you have exchanges, you can have private insurance. And then if you're not insured, again, as we talked about before, public hospital still has to take you and care for you. So it's it, it just seems extremely complicated and more complicated than any other place that I'm aware of. Just from a public health perspective, is this an argument for something more unified? I mean, I know I'm beginning to sound like maybe Bernie Sanders here or something, but some kind of single payer system or 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 something more centralized where the records are all kept in one place and we just don't have to figure everything out. I mean, I spend a lot of time trying to figure things out. And if I could have that time back, I could be doing other things with it, for example. So, yeah, boy, this could be a whole other conversation for me, <laughs> but I I hear you. And I, you know, so I worked in the I worked in the hospital. I worked in a couple of different hospitals here and in other states as a hospitalist. Um, and there's a lot of great aspects to our medical care system. There are so many challenges. And I think one of them is if you think about the amount of advocacy that someone needs to be able to expend in the United States to get the care that they need and the follow-up and make sure nothing falls through the cracks, as you're mentioning, I'm not speaking to any specific situations here in Onondaga, but nationally, it it takes a lot of time and a lot of um, a lot of a lot of capacity to advocate for yourself. And so I think um, I don't know what the future will hold for insurance. But I do think that there is potentially a role for the health department, as I was saying, to kind of help facilitate connections and streamline processes for people. Because the less that we can just say, well, we're going to refer you out for this and you should really follow up and do this. Mm -hmm. That gets to be really hard in a system like ours. And that's where things can start to fall through the cracks, too. Yeah. You know, another thing I wanted to ask you about is, um, and I think COVID really has brought this much more to the forefront than it was in the past, but it's always been there. And that's, there's been a lot of public discussion and debate about the relationship between public science, or let me put it this way, publicly employed science um, and politics. And certainly, you know, again, public health just is at the forefront of that. We talked at the beginning, your, your appointment as public health commissioner, you're not you're not supposed to be political. You're not talking about things politically, but it was a political appointment. Um, and so how do you ensure that politics doesn't influence what you do? Or And, and, and how more broadly, how do you think about navigate this? I mean, not, I've already asked you a couple of questions that obviously are politically charged about inequality, about race versus income, about single payer, you know. So how do you I just don't I just don't see how a public health commissioner would be able to to keep that straight. So I appreciate the question. Um, 
to me, public health actually perhaps functions at its best when it's integrated into a system where it has, um, well, access to wraparound services, other services like social services, child family services, and working within the county system. That's a fantastic opportunity to be working with these other governmental services. It kind of gives our, to my mind, it gives our somewhat at times idealistic public health vision legs hmm. to operate within a system. Um, and I, I think it's all a matter of recognizing where everybody's on the same page. And in my experience, everybody's working well on the same page. We want the same things for our community. We want communities that are historically under-resourced to be resourced. And that helps in all aspects, including health. Yeah, the county doesn't seem to be as divided politically, say, as um, the nation is, or 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 even or even state legislatures are. We've got about a couple minutes left. I wanted to squeeze in one, maybe two more questions. But um, this is kind of a wild card, and I've been doing a lot of programs about Micron and the huge investment about about this hundred billion dollar investment from Micron and, and a mega complex for chip manufacturing uh, north of the city. Um, does that, what, what implications do you think such a development has for the public health of the region? I mean, obviously there's probably some opportunities there bringing in that money, but do you see any potential challenges that you as a public health person are gonna worry about? I mostly see opportunities right now. As you're saying, it's exciting to think about the the resources that that might bring into our area, including not just economic resources, but um, skilled doctors and nurses and people to work in our area. Um, additionally, I, I hope that it gives the opportunity to um, think about the design of some of our neighborhoods, new areas that may be built to support Micron, as well as some of the other areas that might be revitalized in terms of access to food and transport and, mm. and care and things like that. So I'm sure there will be challenges. There are with everything, but I think there's a lot of opportunities there. That makes sense. My last question is a little more personal, if, if I could, and, and it doesn't require a long answer, but you obviously pay a lot of attention to health. Syracuse has a lot of delicious foods that are not healthy, like that sandwich that every politician has to eat at the state fair. What is your favorite Syracuse-oriented or Syracuse-based not healthy food? <laughs> I think I'm going to go with chicken wings. Okay, that's pretty unhealthy. Good choice. All right. We'll have to leave it there. Um and that was uh, Public Health Commissioner Katherine Anderson, Public Health Commissioner of Onondaga County. Dr. Anderson, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media, conversations in the public interest. The Campbell Conversations, conversations in the public interest, is hosted and produced by Grant Reher, engineered by Tom Fazio. Assistant producer is Jacqueline Witwicky, and the program is edited by Mark Lefonier. The Campbell Conversations is a joint production of the Campbell Public Affairs Institute at Syracuse University and WBARVO Public Media. To learn more about the program and hear previous interviews, visit wbarvo.org slash Campbell Conversations.